everyone, and welcome to Behind the Mask. I'm one of your co-hosts, EJ, and joining me is Lori. Good morning. And T. Hey. Today we're recording episode 19, which we're calling Massive Depression, which goes hand in hand with our last episode, which was the Massive Anxiety. Um, and some of the stuff that we'll talk about today may be repeats, but we're also going to mention that there are some stuff that you can go listen to Massive Anxiety that we probably won't talk about again. So just check that out. Um, just a friendly reminder that anything discussed in this podcast is not to be used as a diagnosis or a replacement for conversations with your own doctors, therapists, psychologists, or other medical professionals. And just to uh, quickly jump in and say that, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, we are on YouTube now. Um, so we're recording this slightly differently. We're using Zoom. And so you can actually see us as we're recording. If you want to check us out on YouTube, you can just look up Behind the Masks podcast. Um, yeah, so just check us out. Um, and so let's get into the episode. Um, Tina, why don't you kind of start us off here? <laughs> Nothing like being in the hot seat on a uh, right off the bat. So <laughs> we are talking about depression. And like, like EJ said, depression and anxiety go hand in hand. They're very, um, when you see one, you often see the other. It's not unusual. However, they do have some distinct differences. Um, anxiety is a lot of there tends to be a lot of energy behind it, a lot of, you know, go, go, go. Um, but with depression, it's, it's uh, people often experience far less um, energy and um, there's a lot more sadness and uh, a lot of other things to go with it. The other thing to note about depression is that there are different kinds of depression. There's situational, situational depression. So you can be sad and depressed because of something going on, like a loss. Um, or grieving, et cetera, um, or just, you know, just being overwhelmed by so much that's going on. Um, and then there's uh, a depression that is more uh, chronic, or we, we refer to it as uh, episodic. So it recur, it keeps re happening. There'll be down uh, times when you're not depressed, um, but then you'll have another cycle or another episode of depression. And um, and everybody, it looks different. So that's just some, just some things there. Some specific symptoms of depression include loss of interest in things you usually enjoy, um, pervasive sadness, uh, crying uh, that above and beyond the situation. Um, some, other, some other ones would be um, uh, sorry, my brain just kind of died out on me. Um, <laughs> uh, lots of, lots of energy. I think I said that, um, appetite changes, weight changes. Uh, we can see those in that. Um, and weight just, changes we, both ways actually yes, up and down. Yeah, absolutely. Some people yeah. choose not to eat and that's when they end up doing a lot of their, you know, they get depressed. So they just don't eat other times it's you stress eat. So you're eating a lot. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it is directly, the weight changes are directly tied into the appetite changes. Um, sleep disturbances is common. Um, so those are just a few. Uh, I have a question, T. Um, you had mentioned that, that there's some differences <clears throat> between um, anxiety and depression and, and is there a psychological, like, does it hit different 
um, parts of our brain or you know, what, what uh, psychologically or what uh, scientifically makes it different? You're, you're right. It is in different parts of the brain. Uh, um, but they're also drawing off memory. They're close uh, in proximity to each other. Um, if I remember correctly, um, there's less, it's, anxiety is less about serotonin and dopamine, whereas depression um, is very closely related to the brain's production of serotonin and dopamine. Um, and the scientific part of that is that um, so in our, our brain and our liver both produces serotonin, but in our brain, the neurotransmitters release the serotonin um, from one neurotransmitter to the next. However, um, if that serotonin isn't drawn to the next um, neurotransmitter, it gets brought back up to the original. original. So um, someone with depression, that's what's happening is the next transmitter isn't taking the serotonin, which helps us feel good. Um, and so it's, it gets sucked back up to the other one. So the, the meds that are prescribed for it often keep that from happening. They keep it from getting pulled back into the original neurotransmitter so that the next one has more opportunity to move the serotonin on. And so um, the, uh, Med medications that are typically prescribed for anxiety operate different than that. I'm not as well versed on that one as I am the SSRIs, the serotonin. Oh, now I'm not going to be able to. The reuptake inhibitor is, is what those are. You're on mute, Lori. And I took my off. Thank you. Um, my other question then is. What then takes us to that where we would be considered clinical, clinically depressed? And, and um, I'm assuming it's some similarities of patterns and you know things like that, but what, what would take us to that point where we would get classified, someone would be classified as clinically depressed? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a, a few ways. Um, in my world, in my office, it's it's observation and getting a history from the client. Um, it's it's noting whether there is a situation at hand that is creating um, the depression. You know, like did that person experience a significant loss? Um, is there particular stress in their life right now that they're feeling unable to handle? Um, are they tired? Are they exhausted from that? Or is there a pattern? Is 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 there been episodes before? Um, and does this, does this mood, we'll call it a mood, exist even when the stressors aren't there? Mm -hmm. And so then it's more of a clinical. I do believe there are medical tests that can be done too. Like you can test the levels of, of serotonin um, in, a in a person, I think in the blood work, but also urine tests can determine if it's, I think it's 5-HAA or 5, I can't, I, I'm uh, not looking at it, so I can't remember, but there's a specific marker that they can look for in, in your urine output that if you're producing enough of it or too much of it, that they can determine. But mostly it's a paper assessment. Like if you go to the doctor's office, they'll hand you what's called a Beck's inventory that they suspect you might be depressed. And you answer that and based on the score you receive off that, they might determine that you're depressed. 
um, it's a good handy tool, but I really uh, personally think that talking to a therapist as well as doing that inventory is super important because again, we can observe them and look to see if there's a history here. Is there a family history? Because it is a genetic uh, clinical depression is often seen throughout the family. It's not just one person in the family that has it. Well, being as one that is clinically depressed, um, uh, it I was diagnosed because it affected my daily life. Like yes, that's that that was the big thing for them. They're like it because I didn't want you know like I the you know, cause I know we talked about the anxiety. I was under some stress at work that kind of caused me to like get depressed. And then that moved into other things in my life. Like I didn't want, like, I didn't want to go out. I, you know, there's you know, bordering on like agoraphobia and things like that. I didn't want people to touch me. Um, and so then that started weighing on me. And the next thing you know, like the depression is setting in because like, I just, it was kind of holding me back. Um, so yeah, I, and I'm on medication for it. I take it every day. Um, and just I'm on a low dose um, that just is enough to take the edge off in a way you know it's just to kind of keep me going not to like make me super happy um, but you know and medication is definitely one way there are quite a few other ways you know and I know um, like for me there were t there was a medication I was on and I spent a lot of time one summer out in the sun and didn't realize the correlation to what the vitamin D from the sun did. And the next thing I know, like my medication wasn't working because it was, or it was working way too well because I was on an SSRI and vitamin D turns into serotonin in your body. So if I was out in the sun a lot, which is not something we get a lot here in Washington, except like in a few months in the summer. Um, so seasonal depression is also another one that, you know, we find. But because I'd been out in the sun, then I noticed all my symptoms were getting worse because I had way too much serotonin. So there's like a fine balance. And that's, yes. that's what, that's why a lot of times when people go on medication, they have to like go on multiple or see which dose is going to work because they don't want to give you too much, but they don't want to give you just like the bare minimum. Um, so yeah, so those are a couple of things and like the seasonal depression, especially here in like the Pacific Northwest, because we're notorious for not having a lot of sun except in like July and August and September is kind of our bulk of our heat um, and summer months. So the rest of the year, it's kind of gray, it's kind of dreary. We're not getting as much vitamin D, people aren't going out as much. So it's very common to have seasonal depression. And I'm sure there's other parts of the world that's the same thing. Like they have only a sun for a certain amount of time of the year. And so the rest of it's just really kind of dark. Um, and I think like for me with the clinical depression, it's definitely, um, you know, aggravated too, by also I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which that was one of the side effects as well. So I have like, um, you know, because that's a hormone related, uh, disease, um, around my menstrual cycle, I often notice that I am more depressed or I'm less depressed or, and it's because the hormones also are affecting things. Um, so there's quite a few factors in it. And that's definitely like doctors, like my psychologist and my doctor worked really closely together, to figure out like what medication was going to work the best for me. Um, 
and they wanted to put me on one medication that could help with both the anxiety and the depression. They didn't want me to have be on separate um, because there are some that just help with depression and there are some that just help with anxiety, but they wanted me to have one that was good for both um, because they didn't want to over-medicate me. And I didn't want to be over-medicated because they, like, I was like, it was really hard for them to get me to go on something because I didn't want to go on anything. I didn't want medication to affect me. But at some point I realized I need help and this medication can help me. That's a, that's a part that's really important. There's a few things that you said that, that were really important. First of all, I'm really glad you brought up the vitamin D aspect because oftentimes when I work with clients, it's one of the things I'll ask them is, have you had your vitamin D levels uh, checked? Because you can't get those checked. Um, it, is a, it is definitely a factor in mood, um, not only in the location you currently live, but sometimes it's your ethnic background too. So right. for example, I struggle keeping my vitamin D levels up. First of all, I live in the Northwest, but second of all, I'm also Nordic. And uh, that's one of the, one of the uh, ones that they, they've identified that just typically have a low vitamin D to start with. And um, so it's a big struggle to even get mine up to it, it doesn't even make it to the threshold. It's always lower than the threshold that they like to see it at. Right. Yeah. I have um, to take like 5,000 milligrams a day just to get it to like the middle of, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I think they even had me at 10,000 at one point just to try to get, get it to go somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the first time they tested, I was an added eight. They were like a minimum of a 30. Yeah. It's not, they're not happy there, but a minimum of 30. And we only got it up to 16. So, yeah, but yeah, so that's a good point. I, I forgot about that, but yeah, I've got Scandinavian heritage in me so that I have very fair skin. And so it's, it's like that kind of vicious balance. Cause again, Nordic countries, it's often that, you know, you get a lot of snow and you a lot of dark winters and then not a lot of sun in the summer. Right. So, wow. I, I never thought about it that way, but you're <laughs> Yep. But so those are some really interesting things too. And the other thing you said is getting your, your um, medical team to communicate with each other mm -hmm. to make sure, because another factor too, that I often find with clients is they're on a lot of medications and there are interactions. Mm -hmm. So making sure there's no med um, um, interactions between your medicines. Um, and if there is, then talk with your team to make sure that, you know, you're on the right doses or is there anything that can be changed to help right. reduce that, that interaction that's happening. And then yeah. some medications, yeah. uh, there may not be interactions between medication. It might be one medication that does one of their side effects, yeah. um, is an increased right. risk for depression, um, right. and or anxiety. Yeah. So that's definitely an important factor too. And then, um, on, back on the vitamin D, we can get that in some of the foods we eat too. Right. Um, so just being aware of that, that might be mm -hmm. something um, yeah. to do as well. And then medications is one part of it. Um, therapy and counseling. Um, Self-care is super important. Um, I often, if I'm dealing with someone who's got depression, um, they're not doing the things they normally would do. I tell them to go do it anyway. I don't, I tell them I don't care if you want to or not do it. You used to like it, you'll like it again. <laughs> so, you know, but, and being active. So that's another piece too, is being active. Um, whether it's exercise, 
um, going for hikes, just doing something that gets you moving. That's super important for depression. Um, I was thinking as you ladies were talking, I've definitely, I am unmuted, right? I forget when I'm unmuted. You are. Thanks everybody for putting up with me today. I've been, I'm just getting over COVID. So I'm trying not to do a lot of coughing and interrupting and, but I really wanted to participate in today's meeting. Um, so personally, outside of some observations of some of my very good friends, um, I really didn't, um, growing up, um, and even, you know, into my young adult life, I really didn't, I hate to confess this, but I didn't have a lot of empathy or compassion or understanding of how someone gets to that point. Like it just, <laughs> excuse me, really did elude me. Um, I, as you know, we've noted in previous conversations, I am normally a lot more animated than I am this morning, but um, just a, a more sunny, positive, naturally that way. Um, and I often say, you know, that God gave me a very miraculous ability to find silver linings, even in the darkest of points. And I know for a fact without that ability, I would not be standing or sitting here in front of everybody even talking. So I never took that for granted, but I wish that from a younger age, I could have maybe had a little more empathy or compassion for those who don't have that ability. Um, well, you know, but <coughs> go ahead while I cough. <sighs> You're right. I, and I think that, you know, it happens and there's a lot of, you know, I, I think it's a lot of, you know, we've talked in the past about generations and as certain generations grew up a certain way and <clears throat> even my parents, cause they were a little older when they had me. So my dad, I think was close to 40 when I was born. Um, so I was growing up, you know, and he grew up, so he was growing up in like the forties, fifties, sixties, you know, generation where I'm like, you just, regardless of how you felt, you got up, you went to work, you did your thing. And that was it. Like, there was no choice. There was no depression. And you know, you're not going to not feeling you just sucked it up and did it. Um, and I think over time, especially I know for me, like there were times where it was like, yeah, I was upset about doing something, but then I was like, I forced to do it. Um, just, you know, so I think it's only in the last maybe 20. And I think T can maybe chime in on this a little bit too but like in the last like 20 30 years depression has really only become more widely accepted um because a lot of times when you just didn't want to go anywhere it was you were being lazy or you didn't want to go do something oh you weren't being you were being lazy if you didn't want to clean you were being lazy well now they're starting to realize there's actually things going on that you know is causing that um and how, you know, the body chemicals, once one is off kilter, it can cause so many other issues. Um, and that's why it's important, like T was saying that, like to have your doctors communicate. Thankfully, I was seeing a psychologist and just an MD at the time. I didn't have a bunch of specialists prescribing medication. So it was just those two. Um, and I know Lori can attest, like she's got a team, like she's got different specialists, depending on what, you know, she's dealing with. Um, and they all try to work together as best they can to like, make sure they're not giving one that's going to cause issues with another part of, you know, Lori. Um, and yet we still make mistakes. 
which it does happen. And there are times, and one thing I did want to say about medication, if you do end up going the route of medication is you don't have to be on it forever. A lot of people fear that you get on the medication, you never get off it. And that's true for some people. Some people can get on it for a while and resolve the issues they've been getting through and they smooth it out. They learn how to deal with it. They can, um, they're mindful about what they're doing and how they're acting in their life. And they, uh, you know, acknowledge what the situation is and they get out of it. And then they get off the medication slowly. It's not something you just go off cold Turkey. Um, but there are some people like myself who find that I need that little bit of help every day to just kind of get me through. Um, and so I will more than likely be on it for a large portion of my life and that's okay. Yeah. So you're, you're right. There's some things that, um, that are considered when doing the medication. Um, in some cases, people have an imbalance that the medication corrects and they can be on it for a period of time. The brain starts operating and, and making and producing and well, that is the same word, um, moving the, the chemicals and hormones and stuff the way it's supposed to. So it writes the ship, so to speak, and then you can wean off the medication. That is definitely a thing. Some people do need to be on it uh, longer and long-term. Um, and, and then the other, the other thing too is the temporary might be, it's, it's a tool to use while you're learning more tools. And so it's definitely it depends on the person. And, um, there is within the diagnosis, there is a mild, moderate, and severe um, piece to it that is used in providing a diagnosis for clinical depression. And then, like I said, mm -hmm. recurrent, episodic, et cetera. Those chronic is another word that'll often get used. So those are all pieces to describe that person's individual depression. Um, and um, that reminds me of something else that you said, EJ, that that I wanted to really uh, talk about is for something to be considered a disorder, it does have to interfere with your daily living, interfere with your job, your school, your home life, uh, your relationships, things like that. Um, so it's not considered a disorder unless that exists, just pretty much any disorder in, in our manual, um, but with depression specifically. So someone can be depressed, mildly depressed and still go to work still go to school, still take care of their, their home life. And it, it might be impacted, but it doesn't stop. So it'd be mild, it'd be considered mild. But it can go all the way to severe where a person literally cannot shower, doesn't shower, they can't get out of bed, they can't go to work, they can't talk to people, they're pretty much shut down. When, when we get see those cases, typically they are, um, will often require more extensive or significant um, intervention, right? Um, that even beyond medication, sometimes it might be hospitalization and and or um, electroshock therapy, which is something that still exists. It's not like in the old days when when you'd see them just take a paddles and whang. Right. No, it's very, very sad. Look at that tea. I have to admit, my heart was like, really? This to what? What are you talking about? Like. Yeah, it's actually it's actually not uncommon it's rare to i mean it takes a pretty severe case to get to that point um but it does it does have positive outcomes 
Um, that's why they still use it, but it's a lot more sophisticated now. Yeah. Um, not so barbaric as it was in the beginning. So, so this is a good opportunity for me to go back to when I had my coughing fit because how I became much more empathetic and sympathetic, if you will, and compassionate was that, you know, unfortunately from middle-aged, I, you know, was diagnosed with some pretty big chronic illnesses and, um, you know, my liver disease and diabetes, and all of that within that decade of my mid thirties to early forties. And um, one of the things I unfortunately learned <laughs> with chronic illness, and I thought it was funny that you even used the word chronic earlier, Tina, um, is that that's when I began to see what constant grief loss because the, and the grief within chronic illness. So I, I'm, I'm one to see a need, fill a need. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting diagnosed with all these things and I'm, and like, I'm struggling here and I'm struggling there and I'm not one to sit back and go, okay, just give me some meds and tell me to move on, you know? And so I really began to do a lot of research and, and at the time I was working on my master's in organizational leadership and I was beginning to write my thesis on identifying the gaps in the health system where you go from diagnosis to actual treatable care and where those gaps are and where, where the, unfortunately the patients are constantly falling through the cracks. It just really breaks my heart and how these, um, you know, and I've often have, because I have caregivers and things to help me through my day now, um, you know, a lot of my caregivers have shared with me that when they observe me, they're like, Lori, the one thing that's so different about you is that you still have a mental acuity and an ability to stand up and, and speak for yourself and fight for yourself and, and do some of these things. You can, outside of your physical weakness, your, your mental um, you know, acuity has remained relatively high, except now as my liver disease has progressed, the biggest fear I have is, you know, losing that, losing that ability and getting that fuzzy brain, which I get a lot more of, especially after my stroke. But those things aside, what they've said is that in many of their other patients, that they've had to deal with. And I know EJ, you've mentioned this too. They just don't have the ability to do some of these things on their own, to be their own best advocates, to, mm -hmm. to do the research, to do these things. And so they just keep falling through these cracks. And then the problem is with chronic illness. So one of the things that I identified is that it's very cyclical because you will have you have good days and you have bad days and not just mental ones, physical ones, you know, and then and emotional ones and spiritual ones. And you, we get angry with God. We get angry with our families or our friends who aren't understanding us. We, 
you know, we, we get frustrated when our body just won't do. I say it all the time. My body is hijacking me today and I don't get to do what I want to do. My body has said, nope, this we're, we're either doing nothing or this is the most we're doing, you know, right. and it's very, very frustrating and it's very difficult. And so for the first time in my life, I was going through what I guess you would call bouts of situational depression, you know, um, episodic, you know, where because of the losses and the, and there's a loss every time your body loses an ability. You know, I remember back, remember back when we met Aaron and I, there were times I couldn't go to some of the, um, our, our singles ministry things, because mm-hmm. it was literally just too depressing and too triggering for me to go watch people do all the things mm-hmm. I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I love to dance. I really wanted to go salsa dance. You know, I would love to go climb a rock, you know, thing. And I would love to go play volleyball. And I very stupidly did that and cracked my head and ended up with a concussion, you know, because I was so determined that I was going to do what I wanted to do, you know? Um, And, you know, I realized, okay, Lori, that wasn't your smartest move, you know, but, you know, it's, it definitely, I think sometimes life just does that to us, but through life experience, I was able to come to a much better place of compassion and and understanding and empathy through going through chronic illness. And, um, you know, so I'm hoping we're gonna dive into some tools and some ways that we can do that. One of those important things that I do say a lot in, in my chronic illness groups is even if you don't feel like it, put on the clothes, even if you don't feel like it, just go for a short walk around the house or, you know, spend some time grooming your pet or your animal, putting on a favorite show, whatever it is, just do something. And I know that that's a good start, but I'm hoping we're going to dig into some tools and you know me, I like practicals and helpful stuff. So I'm going to let you take it from here. So I can feel my cough coming back. Right. And I, and I think before we get to the tools, I think it's important to admit admit or share that depression is one of those that has some side effects that can be life altering to a point that your chemical balance in your brain is just off enough that it can cause you to hurt yourself, not just, you know, not do something during the day. This is a physical choosing to, you know, self-harm and sometimes it can lead to suicide and it's it's a scary percentage to hear that there are numerous people that have chosen to take their life in depression and I've lost a family member who was going through a lot and just chose to take her own life and it was very tough to deal with Um, but just know that if you are going through depression, there is help out there. You know, all the stuff we've talked about, there's, um, there's help. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very tough topic. Uh, you know, obviously you can tell 
by how how this is this is affecting you, EJ. Um, <clears throat> suicide is very difficult to talk about. Um, Self harm is very difficult to talk about. Um, I find one of the best ways to deal with the topic is to talk about it, to not be afraid of it. Um, to people want to pretend it doesn't exist. If we don't talk about it, then this person who's feeling depressed um, won't think about it. Mm -mm. No, they're already thinking about it. So one of the things that happens with depression that I didn't mention, mention earlier, um, big flags are a sense of hopelessness, helplessness, and foreshortened future. So not really believing there's much of a future ahead. Those to me, the first of all, very common in depression, but those are flags that start getting my attention when I'm working with clients. And then, like I said, the other thing I do, we talk about it. I'm, I don't hold any, don't pull any punches because um, like I said, they're already thinking about it. And just because someone's thinking about it doesn't mean they're going to do it. There's a lot of factors into the risk for suicide. Um, and some of those factors include that sense of hopelessness, foreshortened future. And um, do they have a plan? Do they have access to their plan? And then do they have the energy to follow through with it? So means in the way. Um, right. And there's, and, I know for me, every year when I have my checkup with my doctor, they give me a questionnaire and it has some very specific questions. Mm -hmm. Have you felt hopeless in the last week? Have you felt hopeless in the last month? Is there a time, you know, and it basically asking you, have you thought of, you know, because they want to make sure that I'm not getting more severe right and I'm not being because treated that can be a side effect of the medication ironically sadly it is vitality. yeah and especially in young children which is why oftentimes you'll see on bottles of medication that'll say not for anyone under the age of 18 because the brains of a child react differently to adult medications and so it's very, very you have to be very careful and right. unfortunately, a lot of children have lost their lives to suicide because they were on a medication that affected their brain too much and it caused it to go on the other end. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Lady, I have a question. Um, I'm going to bring up something, I don't know, maybe a little controversial, but since we are talking about being behind the mask, um, I know T, you and I have talked about this. Um, you know, Aaron, you brought up those questionnaires. Um, my, my masks were so ingrained. There, there was, I mean, T, answer me honestly. I mean, and, and I know we've talked about this before, but I don't think anybody knew how, where I was. There was, there was no way I was going to show that. And I remember marking answers next to those, those questions. There was no way I was going to say, yeah, I'm hopeless. Yeah, I don't. Because that would have just been paramount to admitting that it was real. And with the mask so ingrained, you know, I mean, I got to that dark place. And there was nobody with me there because nobody knew I was there. And I'm really good at hiding it, you know? And next thing you know, I've got a psychologist in my room going, uh, what's going on here, young lady? <laughs> Where are we at, you know? And, and Which thought, is why oftentimes everybody says, I had no idea. Right, 
And, 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 you know, if we want to talk in like Christian terms, Satan wants to get in there and he wants you well, to think yeah, a Christian mask was never going to let me admit that I was that far gone because, because that would be, be to admit that I didn't have faith or I didn't, I didn't have enough faith or, you know, right. And I, and I, you know, not to go too deep into this right now, but I, I think it's, it's a, um, gender related, you know, women are more expected to be depressed. Um, oftentimes men are not expected to be depressed so it's very hard for men to talk about depression because they're like ah you know but they're affected just as much um and it's you you know again like this is this whole podcast about masks this is one of those masks the depression makes us put on these masks that sometimes can truly hide how we're feeling and it doesn't want us to talk about it because it doesn't want you to get help it wants to live in this depression it took me facing death to actually be able to get behind that particular mask and i don't know that if i hadn't faced death in the way that i did and was so completely out of control at the time that i that i think i could have you know um you know, and, and of course, lots of help and friends and love. And, you know, my, I was just talking about this with a, with a best friend last night. She's got a daughter who's, um, you know, going through a lot of teenage stuff. And, and um, she, uh, she, um, she had cancer at a really young age and it developmentally delayed her in many, many areas of her life. And we know that we live in a cruel world. And so right now, her daughter is often coming home crying and, you know, she just, it's very difficult for her to fit in. Um, And she's a strong warrior princess who has survived meloblastoma and losing all of her abilities to walk and talk and do all this stuff. She's walking day miracle and she should be celebrated and she is by those closest around her but by her classmates and her friends who wear you know because this happened when she was so young she was only like I think two when she had her first surgery and now she's she's a little older than my grandson by a couple of years so you know she's in her her pre-teens and pre-teens can be so cruel in a normal world Nevertheless, throw in a kid that's got difficulties and issues and looks different, walks different, doesn't seem to act the same, and yet is this beautiful soul inside and out. And, you know, we were just talking, and I dealt with it with my own, my youngest, you know, he, so depression was something that was really due to PTSD and and trauma and things like that. Some of the hell that we lived through together, um, you know, affected him for for a long, long, long time. And he is just now, you know, really as a young man in a good, stable relationship now. And, you know, but there were times I didn't think we were going to make it out of high school. You know, I, I remember him coming home one day and just going, Mom, could someone just put, a, please put a gun in my head. This has got to stop. You know, this is, I can't handle this anymore. You know, and then the things that I had to do to deal with that 
you know, just love him unconditionally without judgment, be there as best I can, knowing I couldn't solve it for him, you know, and definitely get him the help. I did have him in counseling. I did have him in, he did take some meds for a little while there, you know, but it was, it was, it's just a, the whole thing is very, very sad. And, and so, yeah, I, I'm glad we're talking about this and I'm glad we're getting behind those masks because this is a really, really deep, dark, important one. So, well, and then in the interest of time, just to, to be sensitive to that right now, it may be something we can come back to and go more in depth on, definitely, because there are a lot of things that kind of came up and even in today's conversation. Um, so I would like, if, if you guys don't mind, to kind of jump in there with a few thoughts and ideas on this topic. Like I said, with the idea that, we, you know, um, first of all, we can go into it in more depth. Uh, second of all, EJ will be reminding everyone, uh, but this does not replace um, professional assistance. As a matter of fact, that's probably one of the first things I would suggest is if you, if you or anyone you know is is struggling in this area with suicidality or self-harm, um, that to, to reach out, to get help. Um, I'm going to be uh, uh, telling you the National Suicide Hotline here in a minute. EJ is going to put it in the description. Um, you can always Google it for your local one. Um, those That's super important because one of the biggest risks of suicidality uh, for completed suicide is isolation. Um, and EJ, like you said, you can't always see it when someone's gone through it because most typically someone who has made the decision suddenly feels a sense of euphoria and relief. And so they'll seem happier than ever um, because they have a plan. They see an end to their pain. And so um, it's really, it can be really easy to miss. And it's, it's one of those things is that, um, unfortunately, the survivors um, of people who have committed suicide have that survivor's guilt, like, how come I didn't see that coming? That's a heavy and loaded question uh, that we certainly can't answer today, but just know that that's one of the things that happens. Another thing is um, that helps in this topic is open conversation, not being afraid to talk about it, because um, it's, it's a very real thing. Um, and understanding that there are levels. So someone who says, I want to die, they're not going to go out and kill themselves. It's highly unlikely what they're trying, understand what they're trying to communicate. They want this pain to stop. And they, and this just, and the younger you are, the more likely you are to use that term. I just want to die. I just want this to stop is really essentially what they're saying. And so I'm very, when I'm talking to clients, I'm very clear about that. Like you tell me that that's what I'm hearing is that you just want the pain to stop. So you don't be afraid to say that. If you need to say that, we'll talk about it. And I talk about it very early on and with clients. But, you know, here, I'm going to bring up something hard. We're going to get it out of the way. Let's talk about suicide. Let's talk about that. You know, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings? And just know that if there are times that this is, becomes a thing, that's a great time for you and I to have a conversation around that because there might be other things you can try instead. Um to feel better. Um, so yeah, transparency. And then Lori, when you were talking about uh, the, the kiddo who was struggling with the, the cancer stuff and you were talking about your son and whatnot, one of the things that kind of popped up into my mind is as parents and as friends, we wanna tell the person, oh, it's gonna be okay. Don't worry about it, it's gonna be okay. What that person really needs to hear is, man, that really sucks that must suck. That is so hard. 
congratulations for getting to right here right now because what you're dealing with is so hard even if you don't really think like if you're like oh if that was me i wouldn't take it that hard that doesn't matter the person in front of you is taking it hard and so empathizing with that and putting that out there um people are afraid to do that because they're panicking and want to convince the other person not to do that really horrible thing called suicide they're so desperate for them not to hurt themselves that they're trying to convince them not to when it sounds like that's the important thing is that they're hurt and they're validated yes yes absolutely because the biggest the biggest piece of someone completing suicide is isolation they don't feel like anybody gets them if you can just get them for that moment it kind of takes them back off the ledge and and i mean there's no guarantee there's there's no guarantee each person's going to make a choice that that's their choice to make we just want to give them as many tools to make a choice that isn't suicide and so um yeah so that's my two cents in a nutshell what's the number tina okay so the number for the national suicide um, prevention lifeline is 1-800-273-8255 and i'll definitely put it in the description and we'll get you some you know that number so it's very important and you know it's 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 a it's a tool i mean it's it's you know you can save lives with it um and i know just there's um i i watched the tv or i watched the tv show supernatural and one of the actors had a moment um where he you know was pretty low and depressed and you know he they've kind of created a foundation now because of that because you know he got through it you know got the help that he needed um but now they have kind of a similar hotline you know and, and people and it, it really one of the other actors who had never gone through it but was supportive of him um later met one of the counselors who was on this hotline and he said it he he was taken aback by the, the learning of you know kind of seeing it in, in real life not just on the phone because it made him realize like how many people out there are really struggling and that there's actually people out there that can help and you know medical professionals counselors therapists doctors who can actually give you the help to help you like tina said come off that ledge so yeah, glad, know, glad we brought that up i know we're trying to be mindful of time you had mentioned too that there's some other things right now that are kind of bringing this um this uh depression to a forefront in our lives and what's going on do you want to address that um yeah so to you know for the sake of transparency the last couple of years have been really extremely difficult yeah uh, through due to the covid um the big r anyway um uh when everybody everything shut down and locked down um most of us in the mental health profession were really concerned i mean we just went oh wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute we're gonna see a risk in uh, an increase in the risk of suicide, depression, anxiety, um, because isolation and uh, not being able to access 
like like we were talking earlier, even being able to at times where it was even being able to go out and enjoy the sun. Um, so there's a big concern. And I was looking on the National um, Institute for Mental Health. Um, they did they produ produced an article on the outcomes of the first year of of COVID. I'm not going to go into all of it. We'll include the link in in the description as well. Um, but I want to take a couple of paragraphs out of it and just quote it directly uh, for the sake of time. Um, but it says that um, it seems that much of what we have learned from past disasters and epidemics is holding true in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Several surveys, including those collected by Centers for Disease Control, have shown a substantial increase in self-reported behavioral health symptoms. According to one CDC report, which surveyed adults across the U.S. in late June of 2020, 31% of respondents reported symptoms of anxiety and depression or depression. 13% reported having started or increased substance use, 26% reported stress-related symptoms, and 11% reported having serious thoughts of suicide in the past 30 days. These numbers are nearly double the rates we would have expected before the pandemic. As in prior studies, this survey showed that risk factors for reporting anxiety symptoms or suicidal ideation included food insufficiency, financial concerns, and loneliness. The CDC, the NIMH, and numerous other government agencies and nonprofit organizations have been spreading the message that physical distancing doesn't mean we must stop supporting one another. Uh, anyways, it goes on from there. But that was just the big thing is that the, um, the factors, the risk, risk factors were food insufficiency, financial concerns, and loneliness. Mm -hmm. And so that really fits with what we see as underlying risk factors of depression in general. So thanks um, for sharing that. It was very, it's very illuminating. And we just brings those things that we, we don't think about, right? We're thinking about, you know, everybody do this, everybody do this shelter in place, right? And then, you know, I, I remember, you know, and again, I said, I'm not a person typically, um, you know, I wouldn't be diagnosed as clinically depressed, but episodically and situationally, obviously, but, you know, I remember crying in the beginning of this thing and, and writing in my journal about, you know, this is so, like, I felt so isolated and I felt so, I had just gotten to this point where I felt like I was building my life back up, right? And, I'm, and I just had this major surgery and you know, I'm doing all these things and all of a sudden I can't have guests and I can't have visitors and I can't have Bible studies in my home. And, you know, I, I couldn't do all the things that I was doing in my life to be that way, you know, and definitely, you know, it was, it was difficult, you know, and, and being on, um, you know, I live on disability. So that, that financial piece was there for me too. You know, I couldn't just, you know, <laughs> watching, you know, stars being stuck in their, their beautiful mansion bungalow. I feel really bad for you. I'm sorry. Life's so tough for you. You know, I'm glad you're isolated and you're bored too, but at least you can do something about it. You know, um, you know, I, we did learn a lot, though. And what I will say that I was impressed with, and I always get impressed with in our times of need, is, is I, I loved all the free things that we could do. 
you know, my broadband is now being paid for through a grant, you know, so that even a poor person can have that, so that at, at home I can have that at least connectivity to, you know, the internet and all that. And then I love that um, you got all those free programs. I got to watch all those national museums and, and things like that that normally you would have to pay for, you know? And I found that to be very, very, um, just enheartening and, and always restores my hope in, in the fact that, yes, we live in a dark world, but we do also, my favorite quote from Helen Keller, we live in a world full of people suffering, but it's also full of people overcoming it. And so, again, not to be Pollyanna, we never want to take this stuff lightly, but we do want to know that there is hope and there is some things. So I know we should probably address some tools and things you know, yeah. Go. Um, yeah, I was thinking, you know, kind of moving on. And, and then that's a good, actually a good segue thinking about like, be, you know, during the, you know, pandemic, I, I hate to say the name. So um, just, you know, during the pandemic, I appreciate a lot of the um, ways that we went virtual, um, you know, churches went on virtual line. They either did, you know, videos on YouTube that they did live, you know, live videos where they were sharing their weekly sermons, which is what my church did that some did just zoom services every week. Um, you know, groups started meeting virtually. Um, it's super awesome. My nutritionist is actually like an hour and a half away from me, but I'm seeing her virtually. So it's really cool that I, I don't have to travel to her, you know, office every week. Um, you know, and so those were a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had, you know, pre-pandemic so there's a lot of opportunities that have really come up you know I was able like um you know Hamilton the big musical Broadway musical um they'd re recorded it and actually was going to come out it was going to come out I think this year but they decided to put it out a year early just because give some people some entertainment online anybody who had Disney plus was able to watch it and so just different you know things that were being done you could like go to Amazon Prime and watch a movie that normally would just be out in theaters because and so like even things like that like was an encouragement it was help lifting the spirits of people and um you know and I know that there's a lot of other like and just in general like depression you know you have to find enjoyment in things um you know and I know for me like people must you know must think I'm crazy with all the different crafts and things that I do but I'm like you know what that makes me happy like I enjoy sitting down and crocheting for a little bit. I love to write. That helps me. Um, you know, some people choose to journal, um, you know, prayer because I'm a spiritual person, you know, and there's, you learn tools. Some of it you can take classes on. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can do to just, you know, pull yourself out of that slump. And I know we're going to talk about some, and again, you know, some of them we did discuss in the previous episode about anxiety. A lot of them go hand in hand. Um, I know for me, like crocheting helps my anxiety because it gives my hand something to do so that I feel like I'm busy, but it's, you know, I'm crocheting, which, you know, and then it's the takes the depression away. Cause I'm like, wow, I'm really creating something and I can physically see it in my hand. Um, so that's just kind of, so a lot of the stuff we, we might repeat, but we're going to try not to repeat what we talked about last, last time. So actually I'm, I am going to do something a little bit different than we did for anxiety, uh, thinking about the pandemic. Um, one of the things that I dealt with, with clients the most was that, um, yeah, they would show up on video in their pajamas and I was like, mm -mm, get up, get dressed. 
make your bed, get up and do. Um, another thing I want to point out is that the disadvantage with the pandemic, um, yeah, we had all those great things that came out of it. Some of it I found very annoying. Um, <laughs> like the Pat, let's do virtual hug. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you what to do with that virtual hug right now. Anyway, but there's something to be said being person to person. We emit energy, our heart, they can actually measure the energy our heart produces, especially when we're close to someone else. So when we're connected to someone else. So I think that was another piece of uh, mental health professionals concerns was the lack of physical contact that's desperately needed. We're created for that. Now, those who had pets or lived with family members, that was a, both a bonus and a negative that you're stuck with them. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, there, there's something to be said for physical contact. And so um, just being aware of that, um, we're coming out of that now. We had definitely, I mean, I, I don't, I don't feel removed from that. At first, in the beginning of the pandemic, I felt like I was lucky because in my office, yeah, I still got to leave my house and go to my office because I could see my clients virtually um, and no one else is in the office. So I'm not having to social distance from anybody. Right. So I was like, oh, I'm so lucky. But all of a sudden I found myself getting depressed, depressed symptoms. And I was like, what is going on? It was that lack of physical contact. It was that lack of seeing people eye to eye in the same room. So the right. moment I was allowed to stop um, uh, isolating or whatever you want to call it and able to start setting up my office so that there was enough distance and whatnot, I was getting clients in because I figured if I was having that trouble, they were having that trouble. Right. And I think you know, and when the, the pan, when everything kind of really started and they said social distance, they right. didn't say completely isolate yourself in your home by yourself. They said to keep a bubble of a handful of people that you feel safe with. Like that could be the people that you live with. That could be like, I live by myself. So like my bubble was the few people that I worked with, as well as a few of my very close friends that live near me that I could go visit or they could come visit me. And I felt safe because one, I knew where they were. I knew where I was going and I knew that what we were doing wasn't going to cause us to like pass it back and forth. <clears throat> but I think a lot of people, when they heard social distance, they thought isolation. And so so unfortunately, some people went the full gout of, I'm going to just stay by myself and, you know, not be around anybody. And that's when, like you said, that that physical connection really was lost for a lot of people because they kind of misunderstood what was being advised. And there was a lot of information coming at a lot very quickly at that first kind of, a, you know, few months. So people were so confused. I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do today? Yesterday I could do it, but now today I can't. And I, so there was a lot of confusion. Which can feed that depression. It can. Yeah. So also too, we have to remember and a lot of people don't, we have to take everything in moderation. Right. Even the specialist, even the, I mean, we found out every other, every other couple of days, well, we thought it was this, but now we really think that it's this. And then, and now we've adapted that a little bit because it's going to go this way. And, you know, and 
one of the things my great-grandmother used to say is if I listened to every single thing I heard on the news or read in the paper every day, I wouldn't eat anything, drink anything, and I'd be dead, you know? So, you know, don't not listen, but filter it and, and make sure where you're getting your information from. And, and don't, the biggest thing is don't panic, you know? It really did seem for a while, and I, used to, I said this a lot in the beginning, Every day you wake up, if I, I just kind of stopped turning on the news for a little while, because really every day it was like, the sky is falling, the sky is Wait, falling. You what? You, you turned off the news? I actually turned off the news because it was ridiculous. For I, anybody that knows Lori, like the news is on like 24-7. So yeah, this I'm is pretty like addicted, big, you know, it was, I like the news. I'm a poli sci, I'm a oh, history major, but that's, yeah, taken in moderation and, and the sky is not falling every day. That's like, yeah, and that's a good point though, you know, a lot of people and I, I did it. I, I, you know, my clients to often watch the news. I chose not to listen to it. I just, I'm like, I can't like, I'll follow the mandates that they put out by the government and I'll follow what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to be listening to every five minutes, the new changes, because <laughs> I'm just going to get anxiety and depression about all this stuff going on. Exactly. So you guys are mentioning some, some tools. Okay. Yep. So limit, limit how much you're taking in you know, and know your sources, make sure if you're going to take it in, know the source, make sure you're getting quality source and then limit it. And so you have to have some self-awareness of that, that, Hey, you know, I got an, I got enough information for today because this is just as important today as it was then due to other world events going on right now um, and national <laughs> events, all these different things, it can get real, it can really flood you. Um, and so just in small doses, just the headlines, if you have to, you know, just enough to get the basics and whatnot. Um, some other, uh, so to kind of sum, sum up some of the tools right now, be aware of what you're surrounding yourself with, who you're surrounding yourself with, um, making sure to not isolate. Um, and that looks different for everyone and that's okay. Um, and uh, knowing, the, knowing your resources, what are your numbers? Who are the people you can call? Um, those are all really super, super important. Um, and, and let's not forget our personal ones of journaling, um, reaching out, counseling, um, doing those little daily activities, you know, those things are really, they're just as yeah. important as the big things. I think, I think for me, the most important thing, and there's an actual video out there on this and, um, on the idea and some research behind it, but get up, get dressed, take a shower, get dressed, make your bed. Amen. It's a simple thing sometimes. Right. Ladies, thank you so much. This has been a heavy topic and we got through it really well. And, and, you know, I, I just love that we're addressing these deeper issues in, in this podcast and we're really digging behind those masks, good and bad, and and um, helping ourselves and hopefully helping others, you know. Um, so thanks so much for joining me this morning and doing this. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm glad we tackled it. Um, you know, it's, it's it was heavy. And it I do heavy. Should go back to sure. um, um, and, and um, Yeah, you're right. There are a lot of things we will come back to. Um, but yeah, this was, this was good. I'm glad we did it. Thanks ladies.
Well, <laughs> I was going to say something, but I think we'll just uh, close it up. Um, just a friendly reminder that anything we discussed in this podcast is not to be used as a diagnosis or a replacement for conversations with your own doctors, therapists, psychologists, or other medical professionals. Again, if you're struggling with self-harm or suicide ideation or thoughts and want help, you can always call 1-800-273-8255 in the United States for help. Um, you can find this episode on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, and quite a few other places where you can find podcasts as well. Um, we're also on YouTube. If you check out our YouTube channel, you'll see us virtually and uh, recording our podcasts. Uh, you can find us also on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Behind the Mask PC. Um, and you can also send us an email at behindthemaskpc at gmail.com if you don't use social media. Um, please review us and let us know what you think of the episodes. And if there's something you would like to hear us talk about, let us know and we'll try and see if we can make it happen. Um, you can find me, EJ, on Twitter and Instagram as EJ8302. Um, and you can also monetarily support the podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash behind the mask PC slash support. And on behalf of Lori T and myself, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.